0: Gracious God, let these words be more than words. Give us the spirit of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. There's a story about a new young assistant rector who started one summer, probably 30 or 40 years ago, at a parish in Delaware. Recently ordained and excited to preach his first sermon, he was assigned Today's Readings. The young priest had been working for the church just a couple of weeks in one of those bucolic little country club parishes on the eastern seaboard. He seemed nice enough, friendly. Then he climbed into the pulpit. Uh, His first word, quoting from a different translation of Paul to the Colossians, to this priest's new congregation was shouted, Fornication! He proceeded. He proceeded to preach a diatribe about the state of sexual immorality for his first sermon. And from that day on, in that parish and in many of the churches on the East Coast, this Sunday with our reading from the Colossians has come to be known Fornication Sunday. A high feast of the church for sure. Happy Fornication Sunday. I know better than to spend a whole sermon on fornication Or sexual immorality, as our translation has it today. Luckily, there's this throwaway line in Paul's letter that I find surprisingly compelling. If you can look past the sexual immorality. Paul loved listing sins. It was one of his favorite things to do in the letters. Uh, The early printers needed to make sure they had enough commas when they were printing Paul. Because you have to have all these lists of sins. But in today's letter to the Colossians, Paul takes a break from the list for a moment. He says something that I find fascinating. It's a parenthetical. It's a little bit of an aside. In the list of sins, he says, greed, parentheses, which is idolatry. Close parentheses. Greed, which is idolatry. We don't hear much about idolatry today, but it was the worst of the sins imagined in the Hebrew Bible. And this morning I find myself wondering whether Paul's little throwaway line, greed, which is idolatry, tells us more about sin, about the nature of sin, than any of Paul's long lists. I find myself wondering whether we might use the same parenthetical after naming almost any sin. Greed, which is idolatry. Lust, which is idolatry, gluttony, which is idolatry, hatred, which is idolatry. You get the picture? David Foster Wallace, the late author and postmodern literary critic critic, gave a famous address for commencement at Kenyan College a few years ago. Listen to Foster Wallace describe idolatry in today's idiom. Here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly, Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They are default settings. Foster Wallace doesn't use the word, but he describes idolatry, and he explains the stakes. In our day, idolatry doesn't look like lighting incense in front of statues. Idolatry is about fear. Idolatry is about what keeps us up at night. Do we have enough wealth? Are we losing our good looks? Can we reach our guns? Paul's parenthetical in the letter to the Colossians is telling. Idolatry is about anxiety. False worship isn't a joy. False worship is fear. Fear is at the heart of the story that Jesus tells today as well. Saint Basil the Great, commenting on this gospel in the fourth century, imagined his own conversation with the man from Jesus' parable, the rich farmer. Basil imagined asking him, But if you fill these larger barns, what do you intend to do next? Will you tear them down yet again, only to build them up once more? What could be more ridiculous than this incessant toil, laboring to build and then laboring to tear down again? If you want storehouses, if you want storehouses, St. Basil says, you have them in the stomachs of the poor. There's a freedom in Basil's response to Jesus' greedy protagonist. Yes, Basil's concerned for the poor. Yes, he's concerned that the hungry are fed, but he's also concerned about the rich man. This man is afraid. He's working so hard to protect his wealth. He's investing so much time and energy and labor in storehouse creation. He's missing the point. He has enough. He has more than enough. He is already free to give away out of his abundance. But the fool can't see his freedom. He's afraid. At the heart of this sin of greed, Basil the Great, Jesus, and St. Paul all diagnose it's not antipathy toward his fellow human beings. It's not callousness about the state of the world at the heart of this sin of greed. It's not wanton, ugly misanthropy, no. This man's sin, it's rooted in fear. How much sin comes from misplaced fear? Friends, we live in a time of fear. Yesterday in El Paso and already again this morning in Ohio, our nation has witnessed yet more mass shootings. And I'm tired of being afraid. I'm tired of worrying about whether someone brought a gun to school, to the ballpark, to a house of worship. We live in fearful times. In fearful times, we have to ask, what do we do with our fear? How do we transform our fear and move toward loving action? We need a bigger God. As I've said to you before, one of the best definitions I know for sin is this. Sin is that which diminishes my humanity or the humanity of my neighbor. If sin is that which diminishes humanity for me, for my neighbor, if sin is rooted in misplaced fear, we live in a time when there are ready-made sins, ready-made places to misplace our fear. The flames of fear are being fanned in our society. Sinful flames, racism, homophobia, fear of immigrants, asylum seekers. Politicians campaign intending to make folks more fearful of their neighbor. Let me say clearly if your God is the God of one race, your God is an idol. If your God is the God that blesses one nation at the expense of others, that God is an idol. If your God blesses one gender identity, one orientation, one political party at the expense of all others, that God is not the God Jesus preached, that Hosea prophesied, that Paul theologized. We don't worship that kind of small God in this church. Small gods want us to fear our neighbor. Want us to stay suspicious, worried. Small gods depend on misplaced fear. In the prophet Samuel's final speech to the people of Israel, his final chance to give them a word from God, Samuel says this Don't turn aside to follow useless idols that can't help or save you, they're absolutely useless. Then he utters the famous words, fear only the Lord and serve God faithfully. Fear only the Lord. Fear of the Lord is a difficult turn of phrase. It sounds old fashioned, fear of the Lord. But I have a sense that in today's America, we need to revisit this idea. The prophets understood the fear of God differently What is the fear of the Lord? It's the difference between the fear of an abusive parent and the fear a child has for a loving parent. Parents can tell you, you need to inspire some fear in your children. Listen again to Hosea's words from God. They will walk after the Lord, who roars like a lion, When God roars, the children will come trembling, and I will return them to their homes. God, in God's anger, roars, and God summons the people home. As a loving parent, God knows, children don't survive childhood if they don't learn the proper measure of fear. Children must learn not to touch the hot stove, not to stand near the high ledge. As Ellis and I transition toward parenthood, I'm learning that parenthood also teaches you about fear. That's another sermon. A certain measure of fear is necessary to survive in this world. But we have to choose which God we serve. We have to choose which kind of fear. We need the kind of fear that leads you home. And the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, Susan, the child Susan, has come through the wardrobe into Narnia. And she hears for the first time of Aslan from Mr. Beaver. She asks the little beaver about the lion, questioning, Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Mr. Beaver replies, Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course, he isn't safe, but he's good. I wonder how often our lives are governed by a parenthetical, a throwaway line in Paul's letter. How often do we get stuck in sin because we are looking for safety? We're looking for control. Too often, the church has used God to instill fear, lowercase g. Too many sermons have been preached about fornication, meant to keep folks fearful, to keep them in line. Too many preachers have imagined themselves as sin's traffic cops, when really, a God that small is no help to us. Our God isn't safe. Following Jesus will mean putting yourself on the line. It isn't safe. It isn't easy to spend time down in Jefferson City chasing representatives and fighting for sensible gun reform. It isn't comfortable to ride buses for 12 hours each way to Fort Sill, Oklahoma, so that you can stand with other faithful folks and protest the construction of immigrant detention facilities, like Lori and a group from Holy Communion did just this week. God knows it wasn't convenient to march through the hottest day of the summer to proclaim God's love in the LGBTQ plus pride parade. Worsh- worshiping God with all this ancient pomp and circumstance, serving this not small, not safe God, it requires patience, some imagination, a willingness to go beyond our comfort zone. Following God isn't safe. If following your God is safe, It's probably some little god you've invented. You may feel safe for a while, but check again. You'll likely end up using and feeling fear. But friends, there is grace. There is grace in this gospel. Because following God, worshiping the true God, means transforming fear. Fear keeps us small. Fear of the other... Fear of the truth about ourselves, fear of our body or our bank account, that kind of fear keeps us small. Worshiping the one holy and living God, trusting that God, it means letting go of fear. Letting fear transform into something larger. Fear makes us small. Love makes us greater. Equity makes us greater. If sin has the power to diminish, God's love has the capacity to deepen our humanity. God's love can transform our sinful selves. God's love can heal our sinful and broken world. Don't settle for a small God who keeps you afraid. Follow the God who isn't safe, but who is good. Follow the God whose best name is love. Amen.